You're listening to a DM podcast. Probably the best thing I've ever heard, which is you need like a 10 word North Star for your series. I don't, I shouldn't be attempting the accent. It's just bad, right? And he's like, it's not a, it's not a tagline. It doesn't have to be public facing. It has to be one idea that, that drives your series. And at that point, when I spoke to him, I already had like pages of interviews with people for It Burns. And I was like, this is annoying. I already know who my characters are. I know no one's doing so much. I was being a twat. But. What I didn't realise was when you have done all your interviews, you've got, you know, you've got all this tape, as they say, and then you sit down to kind of map out your series again, almost from scratch because you've got all this new stuff. Having a very clear North Star is super helpful because what you've got is overwhelming possibilities. Like, I can take the story here, I can take the story here, I can take the story here. No, 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 no. What is the point of this series? A lot of you might be pretty familiar with today's guest, Mark Fennell, as he's been gracing our ears and eyes in one way or another for nearly two decades. Hi, I'm Jules, and with me as always is Anthony, and this is Behind the Podcast. Mark's a seasoned vet and was able to give us so much solid advice about, well, everything. This episode is a little longer than some of our others, and we thought about making it a two-parter, but it rolls nicely, and we reckon anyone who's looking to start a podcast or is keen to improve their craft will find this super informative. Mark is one of the hardest-working people in the Australian media, and trying to tie him down to just one show is near impossible. But he was nominated for Best True Crime Podcast for his Audible original, Nut Jobs, at last year's Australian Podcast Awards. So why don't we start there? Mark... Can you tell us a little bit about Nutjobs? So, uh, Nutjobs is a series that I made for Audible uh, late last year that came out this year. And uh, it turns out that over a course of a couple of months, there was about $10 million worth of nuts stolen from the state of California. And when I first heard about this, my first reaction was, I'm sorry, what? And I do this thing every once in a while that I just get sucked into a vortex and I start emailing people and calling people. And it became pretty clear that this was a story that was connected to a lot of big things. It was connected to how Americans grow food. And when we talk about nuts in America, it sounds like a distant story. California grows 80% of the world's nuts, right? So those nuts, you've eaten, unless you have a nut allergy, in which case you should avoid them. (laughs) So it was a story that, like, it takes place in a certain location, but it affects everything. And actually, once you start opening up the door of exactly who is stealing $10 million worth of nuts, you got to look at trucking, you got to look at farming, you got to look at what the impact on the earth is. And it struck me that this very strange crime, and I'm obsessed with very strange crimes, opens up a doorway. And it's a doorway that makes you question how our food is grown. And as soon as I worked that out, I was like, yep, there's a podcast there. And amazingly... Like, no one is more shocked than me that I convinced Audible to let me go make it. Well, I mean, it definitely does cover a lot of areas. So you mentioned the $10 million over a couple of months. This has ties. Hopefully, I'm not giving away too much here, but it has ah, ties it's been to out the for Mafia, <laughs> Food Fads, the Academy Awards, Hillary yes. Clinton, <laughs> Bees, Labor Laws, just to name a couple of little bits. I mean, it's, it's expansive. There when needs you- to be more podcasts that involve Hillary Clinton and Bees. Yeah. I feel like there's a, there's a Venn diagram there that is underserviced. Absolutely. That little middle spot <laughs> is really where the sting is. Yeah. Hey! <laughs> Um, so when you have something like this, I mean, I don't know how much of an idea of how widespread it was going to be that you had before, but when you go to Audible, I mean, what's your kind of pitch process for that? Okay, so I did a series um, with Audible the year before called It Burns, which um, was was actually Audible's first Australian original and was like surprisingly successful. It like it shot into the top ten in the US, Australia, and the UK. One, uh, sorry, it was nominated for a Rose Door, which is a, a fancy European award that I have been now been to and felt very out of place at. Uh, And so it was surprisingly successful. And so we cottoned on that this idea of like quirky crimes was a really good space for me. Like I've been around for a long time in television and radio and I've done all kinds of different things, but this was a space where I kind of, I sat quite well. And so when the nut thing came up, I think the first thing I do, and I do this with any project, which is I just get sucked down a rabbit hole because you got to find I can't come up with an I can't come up with a a podcast or a television documentary if if I don't know my characters are so once you know your characters then you can kind of work out where your arcs are so who takes you into episode two who takes you into episode three and what I'm looking for in a podcast or any project I do is I think I alluded to it earlier which is a small doorway into a big world so you have to have some 
you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be quirky, but it has to be some sort of idea that, that people lean in for, right? So the with It Burns, it was uh, there's a three-way battle between Australia, the US, UK over who can breed the world's hottest chilli. No one turns away when I said there's a war for who can breed the world's hottest chilli. Like, no one did. And that's a great sign. When you tell people that there's a $10 million heist of nuts, you can see in people's face, they're like, I'm sorry, what, <laughs> what kind of crack are you smoking? So you're looking for that, but it can't end there. It has to go, it has to open up something bigger because a crime like that is, is you know, that will sustain a 10-minute piece. It will. But it has to open up something else. And the way you sort of get to those bigger themes is is through your characters. And so once you work those out, and for me, you know, with It Burns, the, the first series we did, um, I knew the moment I spoke to this one guy who was like this, you know, great, crazy is not the right word, but he was, he was very intense that he thought that like a fraud had been committed and he took it very seriously. And I remember staying up until 11 o'clock at night, talking to him on the phone, hung up, we recorded the phone conversation, hung up and went, yeah, that's a series. And with It Burns, um, it was a little bit more complicated, but I remember speaking to a, uh, we remember talking early to a private investigator based out in the middle of nowhere in California, he with the na- excellent name of Rocky Pipkin. And like, it took all of like 20 seconds talking to this guy going, you are something, like I could not script you even if I tried. And then it was very clear from that point that, you know, there was a series there because there were great characters. And I think the the joy, particularly of Nut Jobs, was that we certainly had an arc, like we knew things were going to happen. But all these surprising things happened when I was out in, in California that, <laughs> like, you just, somebody took me on a, um, a ride along uh, when they were patrolling these farms and there's, they decked me out in head to toe bulletproof, you know, garments because they're like, this is where the cartels operate. And none of that was planned. Like you can't plan that stuff. And so, yeah, I think, I think you got to have a pretty clear arc and pretty clear structure, but when you're out there and you're making, uh, you got to be live to the possibilities that will improve the story that you kind of already have in your head, but don't leave the door without a story in your head. And certainly go, don't go talk to an Audible or a Spotify, whoever you want to work with, without having, you know, a very clear promise of who you're going to hear from, what the twists and turns are going to be, and ultimately what, what you're saying at the end. Because if you don't have that in, in your head at the beginning, you're going to struggle when you're out there making something, I think, anyway. Yeah. Yes, you really do have that sort of structure in place before you get there. And then anything you kind of capture that's new information along the way is just is just jam, really. Pretty much, yeah. I, and that's how I approach things. I mean, for me, I, I'm sort of looking for something that, like, I, I feel very uncomfortable about launching out into the world without having at least some clear architecture for your story. Uh, other people do it, uh, and they have a great time. So I worked with this American executive a few years ago uh, <laughs> who worked for Audible and then was promptly let go because they did a restructure, but he told me probably the best thing I've ever heard, which is, you need, like, a 10-word North Star for your series. I don't, I shouldn't be attempting the accent. It's the just North bad, Star. right? <laughs> and he's like, it's not, a, it's not a tagline. It doesn't have to be public-facing. It has to be one idea that, that drives your series. And at that point when I spoke to him, I already had, like, pages of interviews with people for It Burns. And I was like, this is annoying. I already know who my characters are. I know no one's doing so much. I was being a twat. But what I didn't realize was when you have done all your interviews, you've got, you know, you've got all this tape, as they say, and then you sit down to kind of map out your series again, almost from scratch, because you've got all this new stuff. Having a very clear North Star is super helpful because what you've got is overwhelming possibilities. Like I can take the story here. I can take the story here. I can take the story here. No, 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 no. What is the point of this series? And so for It Burns, uh, I I talk about the series interchangeably because they rolled straight from one into the other. But with It Burns, uh, the race to breed the world's hottest chili unveils a world of pain. That was the North Star series. Uh, With Nut Jobs, the hunt for a $10 million million heist unveils how insecure our food supply really is. It's not a sexy one-liner, right? You're not going to go out to market with that as your, as your tagline. But every decision you make about where your twists and turns are, every decision you make about which characters to include, which ones to drop, which ones to really fight to keep, which ones to go, ugh, too hard. Every decision has to come back to that clear idea. And it also helps you, it also helps you inform how you market it, uh, how you, you know, what your artwork looks like. Because you know deep down, like... You know deep down that what you're promising is either a heist or a or a, you know a war or a new series I'm working on. It's a treasure hunt, right? Knowing that from the outset means that every decision, like no matter how hard the decisions are, 
you have something to come back to and deciding it early means that you, you you're not going to get lost in the woods and if you do not for very long yeah and then if you're over there speaking to people and getting these interviews it helps frame you know the direction you want to go in that way as well yeah particularly because you know we all know that podcasts are because they are relatively cheap compared to other forms of media you can do anything you want like you can talk for hours and hours and hours and and indeed people do indeed possibly i am right now but it's but having a really clear idea about what it what it is you set out to make in the first place and always being able to you know once you've done your rambling interview come back and look at it and go does is any of this relevant to that north star the thing that we sort of promised Uncle Jeff Bezos, when he gave us money to make this series, <laughs> does any of it say, like, oh, no, it doesn't. This was a terrible idea. So you, you do, I find it helpful to have that because clearly, as you can tell, I ramble. What are you putting in front of Audible then? So I always start with a, a one page. Um, a one page and that first thing in that one page sort of gives you a very clear sort of sense of what your hook is. So the first paragraph almost reads like a promo. Your second and third sort of paragraphs will give you a very, will give anybody reading it a very clear sense of where the series would expand to and its sort of subsequent episodes. And it's most important for me that there's always, and I real, I was talking to a producer about this the other day, and I realised there's always a line in my pitches where it starts with, but it's not really a series about blah. It's actually a series about blah. So I've got a new series out with the, um, the ABC at the moment called um, Stuff the British Stole. And, you know, it's about objects that are hidden in uh that that were taken by the british empire over the years that now sit in museums and probably shouldn't and there is literally a line in that in that pitch that i've now put in the promos which it's not really about things that are old it's about objects that tell us about the world we have today and that was that was that was in the very original pitch when i you know first started working on it and i think that provides you i call it an engine like a narrative engine to basically say this thing has something that will still reveal an idea by the time you're at episode five because it's important that like you're not burning off all your surprises in episodes one and two you've got to at least promise your commissioning editor that by the time they hit episode five six seven however many you're doing that there will still be something new you just don't want to do one of those series and it's one of my like perennial fears which is do a series that starts great like you pull people in and then where the fuck are you going after that (laughs) you know i want to make sure that when you finish when you're when they're done with that they feel like the ending was as good as the beginning and you didn't overstay your welcome. And that, that's something I'm really like, I'm, I'm quite militant on. It's like, I would always prefer less episodes rather than more because I want people to get, I'd rather people write in the review. Oh, that was really great. I'm, I, I kind of wish there was one more episode. I want people to sort of feel that way at the end because hopefully then when I release something new, they're like, oh, he's back. I don't know why they sound like high-pitched when they write. That's just like a thing in my head. But that's what I'm going for. And if I have any sort of concerns with the previous work I've done, I've been like, I could have cut an episode. I reckon we could have done it with a few less. But that's just me being a tool more than anything. So keeping them keen. That, that would be, the, that would be the, 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 the thing I'm shooting for, yes. And do you think about that in the episode length as well? And notice for these ones, they're sort of around 30 minutes, 25 yeah, I think I'm just used to working to 30-minute episodes. Although this is an interesting distinction, I think, between working with Audible and with, you know, out in the open sort of podcast ecosystem. And I've, I've done both. And one thing that is distinctive about Audible, and I think creates more opportunities than anything, is the fact that Audible, it drops all at once. And it's more novelistic than it is episodic. So when you start listening to a series on Audible... First episode rolls straight into the second episode rolls straight. So it's actually helpful. I always talked about them as episodes. It's probably more helpful to think about them as chapters. Um, And with that comes some interesting stylistic opportunities. Like you probably, one thing I realise, particularly because audience feedback from Audible, like customers is really like quite detailed. Like they write, they write like book reviews for you, which initially I was like, oh my goodness, that's quite a lot. And then I've, I've grown to kind of love it. And then, Particularly, like, with Audible, once you got in excess of, like, seven or 8,000 audience reviews, you kind of just had to stop reading them because it's, like, it's a lot. It's just a lot to take on, right? Because you don't get that on, on iTunes. You don't get that on, on any other platform. It's like, okay, that's a lot. But one thing I did stand out to me was, like, it's weird how he plays the theme every 30 minutes. I was uh... like, oh, these are right. Because in my mind, they're like, you know, you open with a theme, right? Every new episode is a theme. I was like, oh, we don't need to do that. So, you know, whatever I, I do next for, for Audible, and we're, we're developing a few ideas now, one of the first things we're going to do is like, okay, theme is a useful technique, but let's think about it more as a 
as a motif rather than like a stylistic thing mm. that we pop at the top of every episode. Let's like let's choose when we introduce it. And I actually took that lesson and applied it to Stuff the British Style. If if you listen to all five episodes of Stuff the British Style, even though it's out in in, um, in the open ecosystem, I move where the theme sits in the episode so that if you do binge it when it's all out, you won't have that sense of like, oh, the theme's in the exact same place. I want to play with it. So, you know, anything you can do, Anything you can do to surprise an audience, I think, is probably probably good. Yeah, yeah, agree. It's interesting. There's a lot less fat in the in your podcast and all the other true crime podcasts we're listening to right now because they're coming out weekly, so they're setting up and they're going, okay, so where we left you last week was here, or we're going back to something that happened three episodes ago, which is a month. And so something like Teacher's Pet where they're really having to, you know, poor Headley sitting there going, all right, so there's something I told you that was pretty random a long time ago. That's really important now. So I'm going to go back and spend 10 minutes on that. With you, it just rolling through. Keep going until the DPP reopened the case. Yeah, and I th- I'd say that. And also they have the intros, the outros. I'd like to thank everyone at the end of each episode. I mean, you're looking at things that are definitely, what, Five minutes of just lost air every episode. Yeah, and, and look to to um to the credit of people like Headley, who obviously you know te- Teachers Pet is a is a once in a generation hit for Australian podcasting, right? But they were also at a certain point and they were churning it out week to week because stuff was unfolding and and I think what was really you know really interesting about that as a project was that there was a bit of a like it was influencing what was going on in the world in terms of, you know, the investigation. And then in turn, ultimately, uh, the existence of the podcast had an effect on the case itself. Now that's, I mean, you know, I'm not going to weigh into the details of that case or the the value of that, but that to me is a super interesting moment in Australian podcasting that um, was very keen to watch, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's similar with, you know, the the original serial yeah, that sort very of was unfolding so. as people got more and more interested in these things. You know, they have to try and figure out who who done it, and ultimately, you know, you might be happy with the result that they gave at the end, or maybe you leave a little unfulfilled. Were you pretty sure of exactly what you wanted to finish on before you took off, or were you allowing a bit of space to leave it open? There were a bunch of things that I thought would happen that didn't at all happen the way I planned. So we got. Once I was there in the US, I got onto the cops pretty early and the existing cops were super helpful, but then there was a bunch of stuff that you could tell they just didn't want to tell me because they weren't... Initially, I don't think they were sure if they could tell me. Then uh, there was a retired cop who, again, wasn't initially in the, the initial pitch, but we knew we wanted him. And one, of, what I think, one thing I thought was really important is that I captured all the trying to capture people. So once I'm in the US, there's a whole bunch of people who you're like, I need to get this person, but actually they weren't locked in. So I wanted to fold in just how hard it was to capture people because that's half the story with any kind of investigation. It's, it's like the getting of people is actually quite difficult and I wanted to make that part of the narrative. So I'm, you know, there's a lot of like recorded, you know, voicemail messages and WhatsApps and arranging to meet people here because... You know, yeah, he's trying to get the truck driver on a very busy schedule. <laughs> the truck driver was profoundly difficult to get. And I thought that, was, you know, that actually provided a whole bunch of... Firstly, it's it's just the business of journalism, right? But it's also provided all these narrative opportunities. You could you, you could turn... when it, Once you have them, once you have all those recordings of, you know, text messages and stuff like that, you can actually arrange them. You can look at your, your sort of narrative timeline and go, well, I can turn that into a hook. Like, that's a hook at the end of meeting that person. And I always say this to people when you know, when they're launching into a podcast, I say, you don't do interviews, you do scenes, right? So you aren't going, like when you go meet a person, there has to be a bit of information deficit driving you to meet that person. I I know this, but I don't know this. Who can be my answer to that? You can. That's why. So when you launch into a meeting of a character or a cop or a criminal or a farmer in this case, whatever it is, there has to be some kind of inbuilt curiosity gap driving you to talk to that person. Then, in terms of what you include of that interview in that interaction, there has to be some information deficit that that is at the end of it that drives you to the next person, to the next thing, right? So those are the building blocks of that kind of story. I mean, actually having um, those bits and pieces of drama of trying to track people down are very useful when it comes to structuring in terms of being able to go whoa, we've been trying to get this person, we can't get a hold of this person, so we're going to try this person. And I think you've got to be careful about just annoying people with the, wow, this thing's not going very well for you, is it? But and but having it all, like if you're listening to this and ever considering making some of this, just record everything. 
just everything you can. Whether or not you can use it in the end, separate issue. But, you know, obviously don't record people without asking permission, yada, yada. But, um, but yeah, do, do keep that stuff because it can provide all kinds of narrative opportunities. And certainly I, the one thing that links all of my projects is that they all involve a lot of driving. <laughs> driving to meet people, people always wanting to meet in random locations. Uh, because I put a high primacy on sort of physical interviews as much as possible. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of like me driving, you know, rec- having a recorder on and the sidecar going. All right, I'm meeting you here. Left? No. Do you want to? You want to meet that? Okay, fine. And it's a, you listen back to it and just be like, this sounds so dumb. But when you slice, you know, suck the air out of it, it's actually very useful. I guess this is just a little bit more logistical. But if you're getting over there and you're doing this with Audible, mm. are there certain things that you need to flag? You mentioned before going off and, and getting kitted up with the guns and the bulletproof vest and everything. Like, are there insurance practicalities yeah, yeah. that you need to consider? So, so the way I've worked with um, with Audible is both times I've worked with a production company, um, and so I'm I'm they engage to the production company that I work with, and the production company sort of obviously has to handle insurances. Um, my wife won't let me go do these things if I don't have insurance, which I think is a good thing. Um, yeah, so I, there's insurances, and if I'm go- it, we identify relatively early on if I'm going to be in any kind of risk, which you know happens a lot in my profession. You know, like I that was a moment of risk uh, last year. I made a television documentary in the Hong Kong protests, got tear gassed. That's risk. You know, sort of any kind of person that does journalism that puts you in kind of risk. You generally know to some degree beforehand, and if you don't know, you prepare for the possibility. And we knew that anything that involved organised crime, even like this very strange kind of organised crime, was a risk that we needed to acknowledge. And so you set up, firstly, insurance has to be signed off on it first. You have to mitigate your risk. You, you know, you Mark, do not actively put yourself in danger. Okay, fine, don't worry. But the other thing is um, we have open communications, so you have to check in every day uh, with the production manager and the safety people saying, you know, I'm here at this time. We had an open WhatsApp group that gave my location when stuff was happening. So that's quite common, and I think anybody that does anything that puts themselves into any kind of danger, they will do a version of that. Um, also, you know, I'm in the US, so I'm not exactly... You know, it's not it's not a full war zone. I mean, it, it <laughs> may be now, but it yeah, wasn't at the time. Uh, so yeah, like look, I'm not like it was risky. There's no question. But you, I'm also like not a cowboy. I have kids. I don't want to actively put myself in danger for the sake of content. I'm not yeah. that much. <laughs> I'm not that guy. But at the same time, you know, it's important to convey the fact that, and it was important to me actually to make sure that people did understand that. The, the just the the pure insanity of the fact that nut farms are being patrolled by guys with high-powered rifles, armored cars, and bulletproof vests is inherently strange, and nobody thinks of that. I'm like, this needs to be captured. Yeah. And the easiest way of capturing stuff like that is is for you as the you're sort of the entree into that world to be dropped into that position. And you got to be careful with how much you make it about you. I'm. I'm it's not nat- my natural instinct to make it all about me, but in that instinct, in that in that moment, it's probably the best way of bringing the audience into that moment, I suppose. It seems in the podcast you've done, you have made yourself more the centre of the story. <laughs> is, is you gigantic the- <laughs> narcissist, you. But is that the medium or is that- I think it is the medium because I would... I. If you watch my sort of TV work with the feed or Dateline, you tend not to because you don't need to. Um Something I worked out quite early on with It Burns, because It Burns I wrote out, I wrote out like this five-page thing of like, this is how the story's going to go. And I had, there was no, there was none of me in that. And the first thing the producer said was like, why do you care? I was like, ah, it's interesting. (laughs) He's like, that's not going to be enough. The first character in your podcast, the first person that the audience really connect with is you. Right, so you doesn't you don't have to make everything about you, but at le- the person listening at least needs to have some understanding of why you are doing this, and that was a really difficult thing for me to work out very early on because I'm like, I don't know, I'm I'm doing it because it's interesting, and and Tom Koenig, who was the producer of It Burns and and Nutjobs, very early on, he's like, well. What, what about your relationship with food? And I was like, actually, I have a really <laughs> screwy relationship with food. You know, I was like, we used to have chili off with my mum and I was kind of a fat kid and I'm uncomfortable with my body and yada, yada, yada. He's like, great, fantastic. Let's make that part of the series. And it was so uncomfortable, but actually 
it beca- it becomes a really important thread and it burns in particular. And even though I listen back to it and go, oh, I hate that this is about me. I think it's pulling focus away from these other interesting people and I'm really uncomfortable with it. It is the number one thing I get emails about. I get emails from like Mandy from Michigan saying, I just love the way you talk about your uncomfortability with your body. And it's like, oh, okay, so that cut through. And to me, at the very even though I'm uncomfortable with it, I will say this, it is the truth. Everything I put in there was 100% authentic to how I genuinely feel. And so if people love it or hate it, at least you're being honest. At least they love or hate you for you, you know? Um, and with nut jobs, it was more of a um, the easiest way of drawing people into the world. Like it's nut jobs is a lot less about me and my personal journey. But there are some little touch points that I provide that that is purely there to remind you why it matters. And it's something similar that we've done with stuff the British style, which the first episode, it starts with um, a, an object from India. And that's in part because I'm my, my family is from India. And so it provided a, just a little bit of a, a, like a light touch to explain to the audience, this is why it matters to me. All the other episodes, not so much, but just that, that opening one that I think they need to understand why do you care? And then as to how much you lean on it or how much you don't lean on it, I think really changes depending on your personality as a host and a reporter or how much the story really demands it. Okay. So you span across podcast, radio, TV, everything. You can call Every- me a slut. It's fine. <laughs> Mr. Worldwide. We won't get a shout out. There we go. That'll take <laughs> When you started your career as a film critic all those years ago, was podcasting even a thing? The year was 19 tickety two, and the yeah. wireless had just been invented. Um, yeah, so actually, finally, podcasting has been a part of my life since pretty early on. So I started in, um, in community radio in Sydney, and I was the, the movie guy there before I went to Triple J. And I was part of the team that helped setting up podcasts for FBI. And then when I was hired by Triple J, the way they actually managed to pay me was that I'd do these movie reviews, but to actually keep me on staff was my job was to cut up all the podcasts for Triple J. So podcasting has weirdly been a part of my life, like not publicly, but it's been a part of my, my life since, um, you know, since I started broadcasting. I, you know, it's funny. I had heard, I, you know, I'd been doing sort of uh, the movie reviewing stuff and I went off and started doing the feed on SBS and these other TV show stuff, Hungry Beast at the ABC. And I'd done all that stuff. But in that time, podcasting went from being cut up radio shows and, you know, no disrespect to us, but three dudes in a room talking with microphones. Love that genre. But, you know, it went from being that to suddenly the people were telling really interesting narrative stories and all of this great storytelling was coming out and it was breaking a lot of the moulds of what we expected. It was opening up doorways for people that couldn't make TV or film documentaries. Suddenly all of this exploded. And I think a lot of that, you know, we, we talk about how important Serial is in that mix and that is important. I've never actually listened to Serial. <laughs> I'm like the only guy that hasn't. But there were all these other things that were coming out and I was like, that's cool, that's interesting. And they didn't always have that sort of, that's, you know, American public radio voice too, which was another thing for me. And so after a couple of years of doing the feed, I was like, I feel like this is a weird, conf- you know, you know, it's a space where it could have, I could borrow a bunch of my different skills. And so I'd been wanting to do something narrative and it actually, it literally took Audible to say, do you have any ideas? And I was like, well, there's this chilly thing that I've been sitting on. I also said it in that high pitch. So it was a weird <laughs> meeting, I'll be honest with you. So yeah, it had been something that I'd been wanting to do. The short version of that ludicrous story is it's been something I'd been wanting to do for a while. And do you have a bunch of ideas that are mulling about in your head that you sort of say, on okay, on my board, this one's going to be TV, this one's going to be something else, this one's going to be podcast? Funnily enough, I have a very active Google Drive, uh, Google Documents uh, folder that's just called Ideas. And anytime anything occurs to me, I write it in there. I usually write a paragraph. And then I come back to it once a week or so and go, are you a podcast? Are you a book? Are you a TV show? Are you just a TV story? Maybe you're a TV story. So I just constantly come up with ideas. And to be fair, like I've had a busy, weirdly busy year, but a lot of my ideas are bullshit. Like let, let me be very upfront about that. A lot of my ideas, I look back at them and go, was I drunk when I wrote that? Maybe I was. But sometimes the drunk ideas work. So it's important for me to constantly feed into that document so that when you do get an opportunity to go talk to somebody, be it like a, you know, a, 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 an executive, somebody with money. Yes. <laughs> when, you, when you have an opportunity to go talk to somebody with money and the decision make, you know, the power to make decisions, it means when they go, 
what do you want to do? You've got like 30 things you can draw on. You're not like stuck there 20 minutes before the meeting going, ah, shit, I need an idea. Because I can't do that. I'm terrible at it. Like the worst performance anxiety you can imagine. So it's helpful for me to just like to have that document there. And, you know, like in time, one thing I, I worked out very recently is when I've gone to go meet executives in the past or people that can make decisions, I initially did this thing of like, what's the problem you want to solve? Do you have a hole in your schedule? Do you have a, are you missing this audience? I initially tried to do this thing where I like, I tried to be a solution to their problem, which sounds great, except yeah. it never works for me. What does work for me is just spraying them with ideas. How about this? How about this? There's this thing. Have you heard about this? Like, and you, what I've sort of slowly gathered is like, if you excite them about something that you are excited about, let them work out whether it's a solution to a problem. And if it isn't, it dies and that's fine. You go on. At least you like, at least you said, at least the impression you left with that person is, man, he's had way too much caffeine, but at least he's had ideas. And I think that's an, that I'm more comfortable giving that impression, generally speaking. And so with the success of it, it burns. Then they've said, okay, great. Nut job sounds fantastic. Are they earmarking you for another six different quirky <laughs> crime series? Uh, I don't know about six, but it's certainly, it burns and nut jobs um, for Audible have certainly been like successful and they certainly seem happy with it. I've been really, you know, for something that is, you know, it's different to the rest of the podcast universe in the sense that it is on, like, it's exclusive to Audible, but with that comes great opportunities too. So they, they sort of push it to different audiences around the world, which you wouldn't get, you know, elsewhere. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for Audible because I don't actually work for them, but I would say their goals, as far as I can interpret them, are they want to be the home for like, premium audio storytelling and so that suits me to a T um maybe not the premium part not sure I can fulfill that part but I can certainly do audio storytelling <laughs> um and so yeah like we've got we've got sort of three or four ideas that we're bubbling away on kind of to be honest with you at this moment I need the pandemic to end because <laughs> I need to go places to do them properly yeah I mean amazing timing that you're able to get through the nut jobs before this all did kick off well it's funny between nut jobs and stuff the British style there was there was a Good timing because Nut Jobs, we just finished it at the end of, I finished like the primary recording at the end of last year. And I did, I started making Stuff the British Doll at the end of last year. And the rest of it, we managed to do with remote records and stringers and stuff like that. So we met, I feel like in terms of Mark Fennell Industries, which is not a thing, uh, I feel like we managed to weather the complexities of this year okay. I mean, there's a bunch, to be fair, there's a bunch of other stuff. I wanted to do and I wanted to make that. I'm just like, well, that's not happening. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm just not in a position to complain. Like we, we managed to get stuff made. And I think that's the important thing for me. Like if I'm not, if I'm not making stuff, be it TV or podcasts or stuff like that, I get weird. Like you ask my wife, she's like, God, he's annoying if he's not making something. I'm just, I get antsy. I don't know if you're getting like hyperactive vibes from me right now, but if I don't <laughs> constantly make things, I'm like, I'm really annoying. Putting the TV, the recorder in front of your wife to get any little insights you can from yeah. her quirky life living yeah. with you. Yeah. Have you uncovered any strange guys? <laughs> Have you seen a weird thing somewhere that could be a 12 part podcast? <laughs> um, there's a lot of conversations like that. And you always pick them up. You always pick up those those nuggets in completely unexpected places. I've, I've tried to boil down, like, where did the, the ideas come from? And I don't, I don't know. So what was it like transitioning to the, the way you had to work this year in COVID? And is, are there any things that you've kind of thought throughout that, hey, this might mean I've got access to this whole new kind of world of people I can interview and stories I can tell based on being remote, not being such an issue? Remote recording, I'd always been like, nah, let's never do that because that's a bad idea because you don't get any of your, you don't get any of that face-to-face you know, interaction and, and sort of charisma that comes from that. And initially I'd be like, no, terrible. This year I've learned that it's doable. So one of the things we, you know, one of the things we did was particularly stuff the British style is, you know, each episode set in a different country. So the first episode, I mean, obviously in London, I recorded that, but the second episode is in Nigeria. The third one is in China. The fourth one's in New Zealand, all places I cannot go. And the, the last episode's in, in Australia. So we, I just started experimenting and one of the things you know, one of the things I love about podcasting is the ability to take people to places. So in the China episode, um, I had the talent walk around with the microphone in front of them uh, and then they hold up a, a, a camera as they're showing me these ruins. And I just walked around my office with that same handheld microphone. We had the exact same handheld microphone. He's in China. I'm in Australia. You, he does the walk around. He points out like that's where they, they drop that thing and that thing there. That, that should have been this and they screwed that up. And he's, he's pointing out all this stuff. 
if you and if he's got the you know the video camera, so I can see it, but I'm not there, right? Because I can't be. Then you get his audio, you get my audio, you get into Pro Tools, you lay them on top of each other, and my, I'm telling you, it's remarkably, you know, you you buy it. And the reason I'm telling people this is is you know I don't want to lie. Like when you're listening to it, my goal is not to lie about where I am. My goal is to take you, the listener, to him. Doesn't matter where I am. What matters is where he is, and he is genuinely there. So it's about you know I, I get tired of people you know fold. I like a little bit of folding you working into your into your podcast. You know we spoke to him from blah blah. That's fine. But when I'm taking you on a journey, the journey is with the character. It's not where Mark is, where the character is. So I want to remove obstacles to your being there in China with him. So it's about sort of coming up with create. And from a technical standpoint, let me tell you. It's a ball ache. It's so much harder than just like being somewhere with somebody. You, you know, just making the, just making the atmospherics kind of match and things like that, which we fiddle with in, in Pro Tools. But it's worth it because ultimately, when you're listening to it, you are on an adventure. You have to feel like you're going somewhere. And, and you know, it's said about podcasting all the time that it's it's number one attribute is intimacy. You put on the headphones, you put on the earbuds, and using a combination of what that sound is giving you. And your own imagination, you go to a place somewhere that is totally different to where you are. And my job is to remove the obstacles for you to make that journey. And some of that is just a lot of like talking people through how you know Dropbox works, so you can send me your audio. And some of it's paying a stringer to go set a microphone in front of them. And this last year, I spent a lot of time explaining to people how WeTransfer works, and you know, transferring me big files, and you know, it's a gigantic technical. And emotional hassle, <laughs> but it, when you you hear the audio laid out and it's got some of that, some of that bounce, some of that charisma, it's just worth it. Totally, totally worth it. And do you have a stringer over in these countries who can go and take that microphone to that person who needs to, you know, one take around the microphone and make sure that's all working properly, but also capture the footage for you to and, <laughs> direct and then, them and around. then apologize profusely when it doesn't work. Um, yeah, yeah, so. Because the series takes place in so many different countries, we ended up using... What I did is I broke down all the talent in terms of tiers. So we had like God-tier talent who were like, this person's amazing and we need to make sure that a person with a proper microphone is in front of them. Then the secondary talent is people who... They're not lesser talent, but they're people that are really technically savvy and can probably record themselves without screwing it up too badly. So that's secondary talent. And then there's tertiary talent. And we're like, just put a, just get, teach them how to, to turn their phone memo on <laughs> and record themselves with the phone memo. What I've learned is third, third grade talent is the most difficult because the mechanics of getting somebody to record a voice memo and then send it to you without accidentally sending you a compressed file is the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> God tier talent was fine. You know, you, 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 cause you basically, there are these um, online forums of, you know, every public radio person who's got a microphone is like do you want a hundred bucks to go stand in some in front of somebody for a micro you know for an hour and then collect an atmos track mm. <laughs> can you do that sweet so that so we made when i signed the deal with the abc i was like very clear from the upfront i'm like i need that in the budget otherwise this thing's not going to work because i'm not there is not a zoom interview in that series that was my like you know in a year where we've all been like zoomed out i'm like no 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 no. there will not when i'm interacting with the talent we're talking over zoom right gotcha but i'm being clearly recorded on a microphone like the one that you've got in front of me and they're being recorded with you know a microphone in front of them and then the audio comes just lay them on top of each other mm. none the wiser with characters i mean it's it's so funny because you go to somewhere like america and everyone everyone's is brought up in exactly right <laughs> like they're unbelievable. all yeah not to be too stereotypical but they're gun-toting americans oh, and they seem God. to know how to play up to what you're doing and they fit that role perfectly i mean dr uh, rosanna esparza she was amazing you seem to have such a great connection with her you had spoken to her before you left no no, 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 no. She, um, we had been actually funny. And this nut jobs was really, um, for, for something where I've, like, I've come in and told you my whole, like, have a plan, have a structure. Yep. A lot of nut jobs was like, oh shit, somebody's changed on the last minute. You just got to roll with it. It was a lot of that. Probably more than I'm totally comfortable with, but you learn to roll with it when you, when you're a field producer, which is really what my job is rolling with it is, is the thing. And, and knowing whether a person's going to fit within your story or maybe your story needs to change to accommodate them. That's the job. And, and Google Documents helps a lot with that. So with Rosanna, 
Um, so if you haven't heard the series, uh, towards the end, uh, we sort of asked the question of like, what is the real cost of growing these nuts? And it turns out that cost is incredibly high for the people that actually have to, to grow them. There's respiratory problems. There's all kinds of health issues. And so we had arranged to meet with like a, a sort of this young uh, Latinx um, activist who completely like flaked on me at the last minute we were booked to meet him at a certain moment and he just like never turned up and i was like this is the worst but instead we got this um incredible woman named rosana Spaza, and she's a medical she's a health researcher and she's just like the world's greatest mom and she in some ways she was like better because she's like she's got this great connection with everybody she almost becomes like a co like a like a like a, a co-conspirator sort of in a sense because she's out there and she's talking to people in spanish which obviously i can't do because i'm bad at my job and you know, like you find these great characters who are more than just an interviewer or an interviewee. They become part of your character's journey. That's, by the way, the other thing I do. Once I start working on a series, Mark on the script is a character. He's not me. Like that guy is significantly dumber than me because he has to start at the beginning of the series and know nothing and then emerge out at the end of the series and know something. And unfortunately, to get the thing commissioned... Mark May needs to know all of that. But the person you're listening to, actually, that I, I talk about them in the third person as though they're a character. And it, it's very strange, and then you eventually get used to it. You'll have these conversations like, but Mark doesn't know that yet. Mark should be surprised. <laughs> you know? And then, the you know, Emma, who was the producer on Nutjob, she's like, do you know that's really weird that you talk like that? <laughs> so, yeah, there's all these strange mental gymnastics you do to make a series. Like an eight episode, you know, it's four hour, It's a four-hour story. And to hold that all in your head at all times uh, is bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> Does your Mark have your own little voice as well? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeking therapy about it. <laughs> so the show gets commissioned. You hop on the plane by yourself? Yeah, actually, it's funny. I've done all of my series. I've, I've traveled by myself. I think it adds something to it, weirdly. Like, I've got a... There's a team, so... Um, it's not a very big team. So, it's me, um, Tom, who's uh, who's actually... He's British, but he's based in the US. And Emma... Emma was um, Emma's based out of London, or based out of the UK, rather. And on the first series, he had a lovely guy named Rich, who was also based out of the UK. So, it's always been a weird, like, three-country... Pro- Even though it's small, we're, like, we're basically talking about three people... We're all split across three different countries. Um, Very different time zones. Yeah, my God, like the the time I produced both of these series pretty much exclusively between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. when they were done because that was the only time we could make East Coast US, Australia, and the UK match. It was a bad life choice on my part, but they're great people, and I love working with them. Uh, yeah, so we have a very small team, but actually, when it comes to going to um, to the US or the UK or wherever it is. Um, I always do it by myself, mostly because there's no budget to send a producer with me, and I'm, you know, I'm not incapable of holding a microphone in front of people. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was explaining this to somebody the other day. So Tom Koenig, who produced It Burns and Nutjobs, we've now made two series together, and we have never physically met. No, really, never. No, no. Emma and I've met. Rich and I met because I was over in London at the end of last year. But uh, Tom and I, like, we talk because we're doing development on some new ideas at the moment. We talk like at least once or twice a week, if not more. We have never physically met. And I was going to go to the US and then the pandemic happened. And I feel like we've often joked that the pandemic is specifically like devised to conspire that we would never be in the same location at the same time. You can only wonder what it's worried about if you two do yeah. meet. <laughs> yeah, like will the space-time continuum rip open? Who can say? Let's find out. What are you taking with you, equipment-wise? Cool. So I take a, a Zoom H5 recorder that I plug with a, an XLR cable uh, into a, um, a Sennheiser shotgun microphone. Um, the reason I use a shotgun microphone is because so much of the work I do is out and about in the field and having something with a really directional field is super, super helpful. Um, at home, when I'm recording... Um, like VOs and, and voiceovers, that's all done on a, um, a Neumann. And the only reason I bought a Neumann, I think it's pronounced Neumann, is actually because those are the microphones we use at the ABC and I like the sound of them. So I was just like, I'll buy one of those. I did a lot of like end of financial year buying this year. So I built a, my son and I, my son's six, he and I like basically built a studio in my house. I've got like a closet, which some like some, the space between closet and, and like, and room, it's in that space. You wouldn't put anything in there other than like, microphones so my son and i bought some like 
soundproofing from Bunnings and we built it up and that's been my like my little tiny closet where I record stuff and I produce stuff for the last year. And it was really um, like essential for particularly making stuff the British style. I really needed yeah. a room like that because the ABC was pretty much shut down and so we had to do a lot of stuff from home. And, you know, I'm kind of glad now. I, I've wanted to get to a position where I, if need be, I could do it all by myself. I wouldn't have to lean on somebody for equipment or a studio. I, w- I want that self-sufficiency. And you can do it in audio. A little bit harder in TV land, but but it's definitely doable in audio. And how long are you gone for? Um, with It Burns, I was gone for a couple of weeks, so two, three weeks. But it was hectic, that record, because I... And that one had to be really structured because I had to go all around the US. So I did LA, Arizona, New Mexico... Uh, North and South Carolina, like that one was like uh, Portland, Oregon. So that one was all over the shop. With n- Nut Jobs, it was really contained. It was basically, you know, this middle hole of California. So imagine California quite long. The top you've got like, you know, Silicon Valley and sort of stuff like that. At the bottom you've got Hollywood. In the middle is this giant Republican voting hole. Uh, when I say hole, I mean just like it's a, it's a big space. I'm not calling it a hole. It's, <laughs> it's a valley. Love you guys. But I was driving all around there for two, two and a bit weeks, basically. Um, spent a bit of time in LA, but mostly the whole thing sort of was just in this huge sinking rural valley uh, in the heart of of California. It's just a lot of driving. You know, so you'd get a text, you know, we'd been trying to get a farmer to talk to us for weeks. And even when I was there, I'm like, we still need a farmer. And like the day, so the schedule was changing a lot. And so like the day before I was due to go do an interview with somebody, they're like, the farmer's agreed to you. And I'm like, great, where is he? He's like, he's four hours away. I'm like, God, kill me. (laughs) So, you know, you're driving four hours, you know, and I like one thing I do think is helpful is the fact that I'm Australian because Americans like Americans think all Australians look like Chris Hemsworth is what I've realized. And the fact that I'm a slightly chubby brown person in the middle of America asking them about a weird crime that happened to them it invites as many questions as it like they are as curious about me random dude who's rocked up with a microphone from the other side of the world, they are so curious about why I'm there that it sort of makes them more open to talking to you. Disarms them. Yeah, um, I think so. And I'm yeah. not like, I'm not a very, I'm not a very intimidating figure. You know, <laughs> I'm, this yep. ra- I'm, I'm an object of curiosity to most Americans, as I think I am to most people around the world. <laughs> let's arm him. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Let's, let's put him in a bulletproof vest. So I think that as a, as a persona is quite, narratively helpful. And then how much time are you spending doing post-production? I guess you've got two and a half weeks of... Oh, my God. That's just my life. As, yeah. soon as, it, as soon as I get back, it just... it's. I know we, like, we schedule X amount of time. Like Tom will have scheduled X amount of time for post-production. But from that moment, I it just becomes part of my everyday existence for, for however long it takes us to get it, to get it made. Um, so... There is some so what so I got back from the US at the end of October. I oh, what did I do? Yeah, I got back from end of October. I had to go shoot something overseas and then um so I had like two three I basically had two weeks of like just not thinking about it and that was the time that Emma actually used to go through and do the trans get the transcript sorted so we could look at it. And I let I it was quite helpful to just let Emma look at it for a while um and then I came back to it. And so the way I work now is when you get the series commissioned, I I write out like literally every episode as like prose. We hear this, we see this, then we turn here, but we're wondering what happens here and then we don't know. And then it's revealed like it's written like a storybook. Um, and that's helpful for me so that when I'm out there doing the interviews and I come back, I can actually amend that based on what roughly happened and go, does the story still work? Yeah, yeah, story still works. Great, great, great. So that happens, and then it, we go off and we upload it to transcription software. So for Nutjobs, we used a service called Otter. For Britstyle, I used Trint. And after that, that document that was like the living document then turns into the script. So what happens is I go through and I cut out chunks of transcription and I copy it over into into the storybook, and the the storybook language starts to become VO. So you cut a bit out there saying, oh, well, now that talent's saying that. So that so it, it's a, it's an organism, right? So it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then um, in the case of, I didn't cut nut jobs, but it, I did cut Brit Stoll. 
And so what I do is once that's all there, I send it off to an EP and they're like, that's great. Or that thing feels wrong. Fix that part. Like those sorts of conversations. Um, and it's a very general conversation because really what matters is what it sounds like. And so I then take those big chunks, I drop them into Pro Tools, I listen to them, I look at my, I've, I've, I cut them down to the shortest version of it possible. I look at the script and go, oh yeah, no, that, I'm, that, that's not going to work because that sentence that I cut out of transcription where I've cut that person's sentence in half, that's not going to sound very good. So you sort of expand and contract it so that it, it sounds right. And you lay it all out exactly as it all sits. And then I'll duck into a studio, record all the voiceover drop that in, space it all out and listen to it and go, oh, that's how it works. And then I do a thing called th that I call threading. So I, at that stage, I start mixing in the music and the sound effects as I go. And I do this in TV too because I cut most of my TV work. I start threading the music and the voice and the actuality all together. And it's, it's, I call it, yeah, threading because I'm sort of weaving them together and sucking them down in length. And I just move methodically through the episode, then move through the next episode, move through the next episode. So, and then you go back and, and as soon as I'm done with an episode, I pump it out and I send it to the producers and they're like, this is good. This is bad. Change this. Did you just libel that person? That's a bad idea. Don't do that. <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's a process I, I did for, for Brit, stuff, the British stole with um, nut jobs. Emma did that first pass. And then I sort of restructured whole episodes and things like, things like that. The reason I started doing it myself is because it, I hate making other people sit through my shit. So it's for me, I feel much more comfortable like fixing my shit so that other people don't have to listen to my shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big part of why I cut my own TV stuff. I'm like, you shouldn't have to watch me garble that answer. Let me fix the garbled answer so you never... It's just like, it's a low self-esteem slash competence thing. <laughs> so what's your schedule like day to day? I mean, on top of nut jobs, there's other the shows. Show? Absolutely. Yeah. It's fucked. <laughs> it's the most... I, like, I, I looked at the schedule for the first six months next year and it's like, fuck me, dude. <laughs> Makes no sense. Um, look, yeah, uh, because I'm splitting my time between download the show, so you almost always a podcast, the feed, and I pop up on a lot of other shows like you know Insight and the Project and things like that. Uh, and there's in, there's new stuff I'm working on for next year. Um, it's it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, and then if you know I've got two small kids, you've got to you know pick them up from school, drop them off from school. My, my wife has a job of her own that's also you know as complicated as mine. And um, I have a lovely mother-in-law who is literally the best human being on the planet, and I want that on the record. <laughs> and that's that's the only way we make it work. And so it's a jigsaw puzzle. I do a lot of work when everyone goes to sleep. To be honest with you, um, I like I like that time when everyone's asleep and I'm just there, and I have clear silence to work and do you get quite a bit of satisfaction out of the craft of it as well uh, it's the main like at, at that stage right so the, the thing i love at the beginning is like the possibilities and the ideas of like what if we drop the audience in this and we can take them this so i love that part of the stage when you're out in the world there's nothing more fun than just this thing's changing in front of you and and then you meet a character who's great or then you're talking to somebody who's like oh my god you're the most boring person that's ever existed i can't wait to never listen to this audio again or like you, you sit in front of a person and they're just talking for a really long time and you're just listening for the usable bit. It's like, uh, 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 perfect, great, I can leave. <laughs> no, and But each stage has its own enjoyment. But to me, the one that feels most satisfying and the one that's actually the scariest, because when you start it, you actually don't know if it's going to work. And I feel like I'm doing this a while and I've got a reasonable sense of when I think something's going to work. But that process of sitting down with reams of audio in front of you and actually starting to thread it together and you pick the right music and you sit it there and go, oh, this might actually not suck. <laughs> like, that's the only thing I'm shooting for. Like, the, it might not suck. Um, that is <laughs> all I'm... Do in the pitch. <laughs> yeah. I think the people I'm pitching to now know me well enough to know that when I write that, it's like, it usually means it could be good. But um, no, I, I think I've, I've always loved editing. Um, and not too many people know that I do most of my TV editing and most of my audio editing. And it, it re and when they hear that, they're like, are you mad? Like, that's why people are hired for these jobs. And I know, but I like doing it because I like being able to see where the connections are, where the ideas link and, you know, how the emotion lands when a person says a certain thing. When to cut to a reaction, when to leave silence, when to, when to suck the air out and when to let that awkward moment sit. Like, I think I, I love the rhythm of that. And you can be the person that sits over the shoulder of the editor. And I've got good relationships with a lot of editors. Um, you can be the person that sits over their shoulder and says, can you move it like a microsecond here? Can you move it a little bit there? But I just hate being that guy. Like that guy's, 
I feel like that guy is perilously close to being a gigantic fucking dickhead. <laughs> and I don't want to be that guy. And, and there, don't get me wrong, there's so many other ways in my life I can be a dickhead. Like, there's so many other opportunities to be a dickhead. I just don't want it to be that one. If you can avoid saying, use my good side. Yeah. <laughs> you just pick your good side yeah. and no one will ever know. Like, like I'm comfortable with, like, two of my chins, but could the remaining four just, like, not be in that shot? That's why you never see me use profile shots. I'm like, fuck that shit. <laughs> And what's Audible like to work with? Do they give you any notes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they are, um, yeah, they've, look, I will say this. They, they were the fastest commissioners I ever worked with, but when it came to It Burns, they are like, they, they took one look at it and go, went, yep, we're going to make this. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Because I'd come from public broadcaster land where everything takes uh, a gazillion years. Uh, so they, um, they were astonishingly fast to, to get going. One thing I would say, and I would say this to them and I would say to anybody looking to work with Audible, it's important to remember that they are an entertainment company first. So, you know, just keep that in mind if, if you're listening to this and you're considering talking to them. And I don't, I'm not, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but they are interested in making audio entertainment. So I would say if you're going to do something that's going to be really like legally complex or, or something that's super, super worthy but still important – Make sure you just keep in mind that 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 is what their their existence is about. Um, that that's not to say that they don't commission that stuff. Certainly, you know, certainly all of those became uh, uh, components of nut jobs. But just I think it's just worth keeping in mind that that's that's their reason for existing. Um, yeah, and uh, one thing that's been interesting for me is is learning just how different the audio experience is, and indeed the audience itself is on Audible, which it is slightly different in terms of what they what their expectations are and and what you're also like you're around audiobooks and I think that changes some people's expectations for the arc of a story and so that's been that's been a good learning experience to work out how to lean into that uh, as as we make more stuff for them the audience are pretty willing to give you lengthy reviews and a lot of criticism good or bad (laughs) does uh, Audible give you any heads up on that and they sort of say okay we see this sitting within this audience bracket or what are they kind of what's their data sets like on that sort of thing Audible is very much like all of the other big streaming companies like Netflix in the sense that they don't tell you anything. So I don't know how many, I, I don't know how many people downloaded It Burns or Not Jobs. I, no. I don't know. What I do know is that it shot into the top, you know, five in, in America. And I know that they've got millions of subscribers and I know that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's what I know. Um, so in that sense, the, they're, they're very much like Netflix or anybody else. They're pretty um, tight-lipped about their, their numbers, which is, I guess, their prerogative. What they do tell you is um, a little bit about, I think what my experience with them is I bring them an idea and they tell me, hey, we think this works because of this gap, right? So I think that's how it's it's generally worked. It's also important to note that they get excited about stories. Like that, they get excited about, if you can bring them the story that you're passionate about and you, and you think you can you can sell both in terms of the product, but then sell out in the marketplace and go talk to, TV shows and radio shows about, then I think they're excited about that. I think that's an important consideration for them because it is a, a you know, it's a it's a subscription platform. They I think they probably want to know that the person who's passionate about the project will also go out and be an ambassador for it, which, you know, my attitude is I've spent a year of my life working on this thing. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure people hear it. But I, to be fair, I would do that for anything. I do that for, you know, TV shows and, you know, if I'm, if I'm all in on a project, I'm like, it's something actually... Years ago when I worked for Triple J, Richard Kingsmill said this, and it's always stuck with me. If it's worth if it's worth doing, then it's worth making a promo for. <laughs> you know, like, if, if you can hear the promo, then it's probably worthwhile. <laughs> and I, it's always stuck with me. It's like, your story starts at the first moment an audience hears about it. It doesn't start at the beginning of the they, them pressing play. It starts the moment they see your Instagram post saying, I'm doing this new thing. It starts the moment they see a banner ad. It starts in the same way the, the audience's first experience of a movie is a trailer. So I think it's important to be mindful of the fact that your stories and the expectations that come with it actually start far earlier than your content itself. And I think it's helpful to consider that in, in the mix. So, you know, with Stuff the British Stole, I sort of planned out a series of like, you know, sort of revealing, um, you know, social posts and, you know, clips that would, would start early to kind of create interest. And that was something that I sort of planned from the beginning because I knew if you can generate a curiosity graph and, and generate an interest in something before it launches, 
you're in a much better position to, to launch it out into the world. And, you know, to my kind of surprise, um, it's been sitting at the top of Apple Podcasts for now a week, which, I mean, we all know the Apple Podcast chart is like a magical, mystical beast that it bears no resemblance to actual downloads, but it's nice nonetheless. And I think it is a little bit to do with creating some of that mystique about your project before it before people know what it is. We usually ask people for a little bit of advice for starting up podcasts. I mean, you've peppered this whole thing <laughs> with incredible advice. If you had to take a step back and just you know, a bit more holistically, yeah. what would you offer to someone who's looking to start a podcast or indeed go down in any avenue that you've gone? The question that you want to answer is what is it that you can do that nobody else can do? What is it something that you can do uniquely that you haven't heard before? I'm not the first person in the world to make quirky investigations. I think pretty sure Louis Theroux's got the, got the dibs on that one. I'm not the first person. But the way I do it is uniquely me. Now, whether people like that or not, separate issue. That's, that's, that's a thing I can't control. But I do know that the way I approach it and the way I'm interested in telling stories, that's very unique to me. So having a clear sense of why you should be the one to do it and how you want to do it that differentiates it from what already exists, that's not just a worthwhile question for you. It's almost always going to be a question that comes up in the commissioning round, whether you're working with a public broadcaster or SCA or whoever, or, you know, or Audible or Spotify, it doesn't matter. That, that conversation comes up. Why you, why you and this? So have a think about it early. You know, the reason why Stuff the British Stole works for me is because I started with, I stood and stared at this object that was weirdly linked to my own personal family history. And I'm, I'm the worst ethnic on the planet because I don't know anything about my background as an Indian and yet here I am. Like uh, there was something about me that I could make it work. Um, it doesn't have to be some deep emotional personal connection. It can just be like my take on it is this. And I feel like that hasn't been done before. So just think about Just use that as your starting position. Like, uh, or at the very least, answer it before you go ask somebody for money. And what about you? What are you listening to when you're not making them? Do you actually have time to listen to podcasts? <laughs> I, I do. When I'm making something, actually, that, that's a good point. When I'm making something, I always listen to music. Um, but when I'm not making something, I listen to podcasts. Um, so one of my all-time favorite podcasts in the moment, <laughs> so I'm listening to Vogue in the 90s, uh, which is a ridiculous series. Um, Vogue magazine have uh, done this podcast series about all the changes that happened to culture and fashion back in the 1990s. And they talk just like that. Um, it's incredible because it's so... Jan Fran, my old co-host on the feed, got me onto it because it's like they make such a big deal out of things that many people would regard as frivolous. But that's actually something I'm super interested in. Like, I've never considered the importance of, you know, a bunch of supermodels walking down a catwalk to George Michael's freedom. But it was the absolute biggest thing that's ever happened, according to this podcast. And I really like the way they, they make you feel the importance of it. And I've always loved things about fashion. Um, I think fashion is an under, underserved area in podcast land. Uh, how many of these do you want? Because like what? Because I've got too many, yeah. <laughs> which I'm not listening to, to be honest. Let's go. Let's go top three. Top three. Um, so yeah, uh, Vogue in the '90s. Uh, I always love Bang On. Um, it's a you know structurally very simple show. It's Sandra and Miff Warhurst, but it serves a purpose. And the purpose is it's my fun friends telling me about all the pop culture I did not catch up with, which I know is like a genre that is like well tapped, but they do it in a way that is super inclusive and it makes me feel like I'm part of the conversation. I feel like I'm there among friends. And it speaks, you know, in all the conversation around, you know, true crime and narrative and like it speaks to the fact that sometimes the most important thing a podcast can be is company. And I like it because they're, it's like listening to these really fun friends that you want to be a part of. The most interesting thing I've heard recently uh, is an independent podcast from the UK called The Town That Didn't Stare. Um, and actually, I was listening to this when I was driving around uh, to make Stuff the British Style. And it's about a town called East Grinstead in the UK, which just has had a bunch of weird shit happen to it over the years. So it's where the Scientologists are based. It's where a whole bunch of cults are based. Um, it has a strange history in World War II. And the opening gambit of the series by this guy named Nick Hilton is basically, this is a podcast that doesn't have a protagonist. The protagonist is the town, which I thought was a really, like he set 
I love that he set that as the challenge for himself of the series. And it's another pandemic podcast. He made it in the middle of the pandemic. And as we know, it's much worse and more complicated for people in the UK. So he's got a you know a lot of Zoom interviews and, and like really complicated things. But his writing and is is next level. Like he's just got a beautiful turn of phrase in a way that I actually think you can pull off with a British accent. In fact, like I... I remember when I was writing the first drafts of stuff the British style, and I was I was putting like Nick Hiltonisms into it, and the, one of the first bits of feedback I got was like, "It's just a bit overwritten for you, isn't it?" And it was right because it wasn't right for me, but it is absolutely perfect for him. Like it's it's like he has this beautiful voice, and and he tells stories in a way that's really evocative. And yeah, it's just an independent podcast. He's starting up his own podcast company, and. Um, yeah, the town that didn't stare. Just a, like a really interesting narrative challenge of can you make a series out of a place and not a person? Well, look, Mark, thank you so much for giving us your time today. We really do appreciate it, knowing how much you do have on. <laughs> All the advice was fantastic. So, yeah, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Mark for taking the time to sit with us at Behind the Podcast and talk all things podcasting. Over the next two episodes, we'll continue our journey down the true crime rabbit hole with Paul Cochran's Childers and Richard Baker's The Last Voyage of the Pongsu. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> <laughs>